Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we got a lot of great listener mail to get into today. I say we jump right in. Are you ready, Rob? Let's do it. Okay, this first message comes to us from Mark. This is about the chemical and religious transformation of the essences of foods. I think this goes back to our episode from the past Thanksgiving where we talked about some of the strange science and religious beliefs about gravy. And uh, so Mark says, Hey guys, I really enjoy the show. I've listened to just about every episode since I got into it several years ago. You and Stuff You Should Know are kind of the core of my podcast listening. Anyways, this is in reference to your Thanksgiving smorgasbord episode, specifically the section on gravy. I listened to it not long after it came out, and this email has been brewing for a while in my head. Finally got it out. In it, Joe, I think, mused about gravy and the transformation of food from one thing to another in a spiritual sense. There is such a thing today in Judaism. You may be aware of kashrut, the Jewish dietary practice. The one rule that most people know about it is you don't mix meat with milk. Now, this doesn't only mean cheeseburgers. It means at the same meal. If you're having steak, you can't have butter or sour cream on your baked potato. It means having different pans to cook dairy dishes and meat dishes in, and depending on one's level of observance, not eating one within six hours of each other. Like if you have that milk chocolate for an afternoon snack, kiss the steak dinner goodbye. But what happens if something spills in the fridge? If you get some meat juice in a bowl of milk, the milk is now treif, uh, this is T-R-E-Y-F, or non-kosher. However, if you got a drop of milk in a bowl of beef chili, it may still be fine to eat, as meat is considered a greater contaminant. Look at it like mixing paint. A drop of white in a puddle of black paint will make no appreciable difference, but a drop of black paint in a puddle of white will have a drastic effect. Cheese made with rennet, obtained from cow stomachs, thus considered meat, is an ongoing debate. Here's the important part in relation to the transformation of food. Gelatin. There is a principle called Devar Hadash. The CH is the uh, the flim-hocking back-of-the-throat sound, not like CH in cheese. So I, I hope I said that right. Devar Hadash. Uh, in Kashrut, that holds with, that when a substance has been through certain chemical transformations or diluted to a certain point, it loses its status as meat or milk food. Gelatin is the most common example. This is one reason why some jello-type desserts in marshmallows are considered kosher and some are not. Just like one's individual practice, the specifics are up for debate from rabbi to rabbi and tradition to tradition. Gelatin being rendered from animal bones should be meat. However, in the process of being made into gelatin, it undergoes certain processes that are considered enough to strip it of its meat status and make it parve, which means neutral, neither meat nor milk. Some rabbis hold this, some don't. Marshmallows are usually made with gelatin, and I suppose there might be some kosher ones that are, but most kosher marshmallows are made with isinglass, a gelatin-like extract from fish guts. Fish are usually considered parve. That's a whole other rabbinic discussion. So anything derived from them shares that quality. There are some other factors that play into gelatin's kosher or not status, but Devar Hadash is the one that's most relevant here. So it may not be exactly the distillation of bear essence. Remember in the episode we were talking about bear gravy. Mm -hmm. uh, 
But the idea of changing a food's essential qualities through a cooking process is alive and well in Judaism, and probably other cultures with dietary restrictions today. Keep on with your bad selves, Mark. <laughs> and then as a PS, Mark says, I just remembered liver. Liver cannot be sold in a kosher form, so homes that keep kosher will often have a trafe pan just to boil the liver. The process cashers or koshers, I think this is cashers, cashers the liver and makes it ready to be made into your classic deli chopped liver spread. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know uh, much about all of that. That's 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 very fascinating. Yeah. Uh, by the way, you can get vegan marshmallows. Uh, I know that because those are, that's what what we get here at the house. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah, I know in some recipes, um, there are substitutes for, for when gelatin would often be used in, say, certain types of baking or cooking where you can substitute something like pectin, which is a plant product, for gelatin sometimes, but it might not work in all cases. So I don't know if anybody does that with marshmallows. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Karina, and Karina writes, Hello. I'd like to start this message with some praise. Your show has been my favorite for years, and I appreciate how you approach even the more unconventional topics with a scientific mindset and a little lightheartedness. Keep up the great work, and please do keep up Weird House Cinema and The Artifact, too. The reason I finally decided to write in is, however, the recent Vault episode on Kamamuda. At first, I didn't think it was a particularly useful term, probably uh, due to my avoiding team sports, religious groups, and even Baby Yoda, who is indeed very cute. But then I kept pondering the concept of feeling a strong connection to strangers, and suddenly it struck me that it can be found in many a situation. For example, I'm a law student who had a major oral exam earlier today. There are always three of us being questioned in turn, these days, of course, with considerable physical space in between. And the prompts are notoriously anything but easy. So, as I found myself rooting for the others, I started to wonder why, yes, while being tested, and remembered Kamamuda. Uh, sometime later, I was relaxing by listening to my favorite band uh, called Muse, and not partic particularly popular in my neck of the global woods, <laughs> while remembering a show of theirs I attended in 2019. And there was that feeling again, hearing some thousand other fans shout the very same words I otherwise sing by myself in the shower is the closest to a drug high I will, uh, in all probability, uh, uh, ever have. In short, since being made aware of this specific concept, I have begun to notice this sense of community practically everywhere. And for what it's worth, that is great. Quick side note. With German being my native tongue, I would not have expected that other languages lack for a word like schadenfreude, uh, but it's a handy term that we use rather frequently. I experience a little schadenfreude myself right now for others who can't. Just kidding. <laughs> but I do think that having a specific name for a feeling makes it somehow less intangible. Best wishes from faraway Austria, Karina. Uh, that's really interesting, and that gets into something that I think we talked about in some other listener mail after the Kamamuda episode, uh, that while there, I think, are pretty good arguments against certain types of uh, linguistic determinism ideas in psychology, it, it seems, at least in my experience, pretty undeniable that having a word for something can change how you experience the world, that like there might be a thing that you never noticed until you had a word for it. And then once you've got a word for it, you see it all over the place. Yeah. Uh, on, on the subject of Muse, 
when I was I was in a band in high school that tried to cover a song by Muse. I don't exactly remember the name of the song. I remember that I was supposed to be singing it and I was not doing a good job. <laughs> My main connection to Muse is that I, I really enjoyed the French horror movie High Tension when it came out mm-hmm. in uh, what 2003, uh, which is a really entertaining horror film to watch through once. Uh, but um, it, it prominently features the Muse song, Newborn, and uh, it r- really effectively utilizes it. So uh, I, I always associate Muse with that movie and that movie with that particular Muse track. Nice. Okay, this next message is a response to a previous listener mail, which follows up on our episodes about spinning and dizziness. This is from Elizabeth. Elizabeth says... Thanks for regularly blowing my mind, guys. You're the best. Just listen to your responses to the Listener Mail Nightmare Key episode and was intrigued by your comments on both Vertigo and YouTube videos. In combination, you see, some YouTube videos give me motion sickness, much as the early versions of Doom did. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, I just dated myself horribly, I know. Anyway, YouTube's worst offenders tend to be Minecraft videos. I wonder why that is, and if the affliction is widespread or just me. I mean, it's not like my inner ear is moving around or anything. Thanks again, Elizabeth. Well, Elizabeth, I think there is an answer to this. So, first of all, the experience of general motion sickness symptoms, including vertigo, dizziness, uh, while people are using video games, uh, which I think this would also include watching videos of gameplay in games, that is common. That is not just you. It seems to be especially common, from what I can tell, in games that are played from a first-person perspective as opposed to a third-person perspective. And I think this would line up with both Minecraft and Doom, if I'm not correct. I've never played Minecraft, but that's first-person, isn't it? I think you can switch it up. Oh, okay. But anyway, there's actually a related phenomenon in pilot training known as simulator sickness. Rob, I know you you know a lot about airplanes. Have you ever heard of this before? Um, I'm not remembering anything on simulator sickness off the top of my head, no. Well, basically the deal is that pilots who use stationary flight simulators to train sometimes experience vertigo, nausea, and other motion sickness effects, even though they're not moving. One interesting finding about this, at least from what I recall, is that the more experienced a pilot is with actual flight, the more likely they are to experience simulator sickness in a virtual environment. Huh. But uh, anyway, what explains this feeling of vertigo, uh, you know, like what what would get you feeling this way just from interacting with video content if your body's not even moving around? Well, I think there are multiple hypothesized explanations, but the main one that I would put out there would be sensory incongruity, basically disagreement between the senses. So when your vestibular organs are telling you one thing about your movement, such as you are sitting still and your vision is telling you something different, you are moving around. This can make you feel dizzy because they're not in agreement. It's that lack of agreement that leads to some types of dizziness in in other scenarios. Um, And so this seems to be one reason that sometimes you can kind of reduce dizziness from spinning by closing your eyes, right? But anyway, uh, because of this, I would guess, I don't know this for sure, but it would be my suspicion that video games and simulators, the ones that are most likely to cause dizziness are the ones that are best at confusing the brain into thinking that it is just real vision of a real environment. So I think it would be especially bad with virtual reality, but even if you're just looking at a flat 2D display, I think it would probably be the most intense with video games that include first-person perspectives of uh, watching first-person operations, including the hands or controls or like a 
gun, even in a first-person shooter, in front of the body, and especially that would involve looking around a lot. Hmm. I've also found that if you hand the controller off to a small child and let them just roar the <laughs> roar around in circles, uh-huh. that can that can cause a dizzying effect. Uh-huh. Um, I've also found that if I pick up a controller that someone else is using, and and I and they have not inverted the the Y axis. Mm-hmm then that can make me feel a little dizzy. Like maybe it's just because, you know, things aren't moving the way they're supposed to, mm-hmm. and it just feels kind of disorienting. I don't know, if it, maybe it's not full-on dizziness, but it, it feels a little sickening somehow. Yeah, I know what you're talking about there. Uh, I, I'm interested in this fact that it seems like pilots who have more experience in real airplanes are more prone to this experience in simulators. It makes me think that Elizabeth uh, uh, was dizzied by playing the original Doom because she had all of this experience blasting demons on Mars right. in real life. She'd actually been on Phobos fighting off the horde from hell. Exactly. Were you there, Elizabeth? you got to tell us. <laughs> all right. Here's another one for us. This, is, uh, this comes to us from Nick, and it's regarding sinkholes. Nick writes, I spend my morning commute listening to your podcast, as I always do. During your discussion of sinkholes and how they have led to discoveries about remains, uh, such as the diet of the giant sloth, uh, I know it did not uh, have much to do with the topic, but I actually think a future discussion about animals like the giant sloth would be really entertaining. Um, I would agree with that. Uh, Nick continues, I'm a young engineer, but what free time I have, I spend in the outdoors appreciating the world's natural beauty. And on a recent trip to Joshua Tree, I learned all about how giant sloths of that area had a diet that largely consisted of Joshua Tree fruits and that the demise of the giant sloth led to the demise of the Joshua Tree and vice versa. As one may presume, as giant sloths began to die out, less seeds were dispersed by the sloths, leading to less territory occupied by the Joshua trees, leading to less territory for the sloths who relied on the tree's fruit, etc., etc. I know this may be a bit parochial, but honestly, what is more majestic than the idea of a giant sloth? The fact that this animal ever existed uh, has always intrigued me, and I feel it is not talked about enough, so (laughs) maybe it would be something fun to look at. Anyway, I love your podcast. I listen daily, and as a true fan, I tell people all the time not to trust squirrels. All the best, Nick. Wait, it's a, it, the giant sloth is not talked about enough. It's like there's a conspiracy of silence about the giant sloth. Well, I mean, I, I see where they're coming from because, mm-hmm. yeah, the giant sloth is this huge, fascinating creature. And sometimes there's a tendency maybe to focus on other prehistoric animals. Mm-hmm. Um, I frequently have this conversation with my son because he's very vocal about this. He's like, the T-Rex is not my favorite dinosaur dad because too many, too much attention goes to the T-Rex. There are all these other cool dinosaurs that deserve credit. Right. And so oh, I like along this. those same lines. Yeah. So like he was into the Spinosaurus before it was cool. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of thing. Uh, yeah. There's just so many yeah, it's cool creatures and it's easy to focus on other prehistoric creatures, but the giant sloth is, is really neat. And I mean, and also here, uh, uh, here in our neck of the woods, like it's one we can point to as saying like, yeah, there's the giant sloth that that lived here. Actually, the more that I think about this, this is a great idea. We should do our best to inculcate an extinct megafauna counterculture that's all about uh, people <laughs> celebrating the virtues of lesser appreciated extinct giant animals. Yeah. Well, um, I would love to discuss the giant sloth in the future. I enjoy our prehistoric creature episodes and mm-hmm. yeah, we'll have to we'll have to do another one soon. I figured there'd be a lot of room for Moa in there. But anyway, uh, this yeah. next- <laughs> 
this next message comes from the exact same listener from Nick. Uh, it's a follow up to our episode about bonsai trees. And this is a kind of message I love getting uh, from somebody who has been listening to the show for a while. And then suddenly we just stumble across their area of expertise. So anyway, Nick says, good morning. I just listened to your episode on bonsai trees, and I wanted to reach out in regards to the study you guys brought up about semi-dwarf trees and the possible benefits for their use in pulping processes, partially because this is the first topic I have some sort of expertise in. I am a paper science engineer and a chemical engineer, so I have some experience in the science of tree fibers. When you brought up the impact on reaction woods, my mind started racing. Essentially, trees are made up of three major components. Cellulose, hemicellulose, and lignin. The percentage makeup varies from tree to tree and species to species, but in general, a good assumption is about 50% cellulose, 25% hemicellulose, and 25% lignin. Uh, in papermaking, we really only care about cellulose. That's the part that we can use, again, generally speaking. While lignin is what you might call our arch nemesis, lignin acts like the glue that holds everything together and is an extremely complex chemical. Theoretically, there could be cases where the entire lignin content of the tree is all one connected molecule. Absolutely astonishing to me. Wow. And I, I had no idea of that, Nick. That's crazy. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, coming back to the subject of reaction woods, Nick writes, reaction woods are most easily explained by a branch, though, as you mentioned, slopes, wind and other harsh weather can also cause reaction woods to form. To use the branch example, above the branch will build up pockets of tension wood in order to pull the branch up while uh, and here Nick says above, but I, I think Nick meant below. So I'm going to say while below the branch, there will develop compression wood to push the branch up. The tension woods will have a higher proportion of cellulose, say 60%, while the compression woods uh, build up more lignin content. One might assume that this means the tension wood is preferred by paper markets since we like cellulose, but this assumption is wrong, though I do hate compression wood because of its lignin. <laughs> I love this hate for wood. Um, the, the inconsistency that arises from reaction wood makes the pulping process hard to control and actually decreases the overall quality and or yield of the pulp, which in turn makes the paper produced that much worse. This is why the study you mentioned that could reduce reaction woods caught me off guard. It seems like such an easy solution with such massive impact. Anyway, if you ever do an episode on paper making, because it honestly is an incredibly complex and at least to me deeply interesting topic, I'll be listening intently. I know there aren't many paper scientists walking around out there, but once you get one of us going about paper, we could talk for hours. Love your show. Listen every morning and afternoon during my commute. Thanks, Nick. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, get some, got to get some uh, paper science uh, uh, input from our listeners here. Oh, and, you know, I don't think we've done a full episode on, like, the invention of paper and all. It came up in an invention episode, but I can't remember what it was. I think we did one on the book that was about um, the history where we talked about, like, overall book technology scroll yeah. versus codecs and so we talked about some like types of uh paper making we talked about parchment and about papyrus making and all that but yeah, uh, yeah. modern paper based on wood cellulose that would be interesting yeah yeah um you know speaking of, of paper making and and books this is one of the things i enjoyed about the 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 more recent uh, tv adaptation of the name of the rose is that there are a few scenes where you see the monks uh, making parchment, uh, making the paper for the books. Oh, so interesting. 
All right, let's uh, let's get into some of that Weird House uh, cinema uh, listener mail here. Now, this first bit that comes to us, this was actually left on um, a post at my blog site, Samuta Music, S-E-M-U-T-A-M-U-S-I-C. Uh, clearly, I, I wasn't thinking about something that, that translated well to, to delivering uh, <laughs> on the podcast when I, uh, when I established that site. But I blog about the Weird House Cinema episodes there. And we had a listener uh, respond. We're not entirely sure what their name is or what their, their <laughs> name they want to go by. So we're just going to skip the name and say... A, a listener uh, wrote in, and they were responding to our episode on The Oily Maniac. Uh, so this is what they say. Nice job. You covered a lot of interesting info about this Shaw Brothers flick. As a fan of Chinese and Hong Kong cinema, I have watched a couple of hundred of the Shaw martial arts, horror, and comedy films. The Oily Maniac is definitely one of the lesser productions from the Shaw Brothers, but it still has its moments. Those interested in more Shaw Brothers black magic films should check out the work of director Chu Hung Ki, such as Hex, 1980, Hex vs. Witchcraft, 1980, uh, the gross-out pick Corpse Mania, 1981, <laughs> Hex After Hex, 1982, and the wacky The Boxer's Omen, 1983. Uh, but my favorite has got to be Hex Lies in Videotape. <laughs> oh, that would be good. Um, uh, you know, I've heard of The Boxer's Omen. That one's been on my radar for a while, but I've never actually seen it. But I know it's supposed to be a weird one. Um, uh, anyway, they continue. Um, he also directed one of the all-time best Shaw Brothers dramatic martial arts, arts films, Killer Constable, which deserves to be better known and is currently available free to view with an Amazon Prime sub, uh, subscription. Killer Constable. I'll have to look it up. Okay. There are also two more films in the black magic horror genre by Ming Hu Ho, the director of The Oily Maniac. They star uh, Tai Lung and are appropriately named Black Magic 1975 and Black Magic 2 1976. Note, all of the films I mentioned contain subject matter that can be objectionable, nausea-inducing, and just plain wrong at times. <laughs> I believe it. I look forward to more great Weird House Cinema podcasts. So clearly, there's a lot of great um, Shaw Brothers and Hong Kong cinema black magic content out there if, we, uh, if we're brave enough for it in the future. Totally. Uh, so I, I think we've got to come back to the Shaw Brothers someday. Maybe, maybe we can find one that's a little less grimy but still just as weird. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think, I think I have one kind of in my sights. I've got I to research it a little bit more, but we may have one that we'll get to eventually. Oh, boy. That's exciting. I can't wait. Okay, uh, we got a couple of messages. For, this is another thing I just love when we can be like, hey, did anybody grow up in the Soviet Union that can explain all this stuff we don't understand in Teens in the Universe? And oh boy, <laughs> uh, we just got some really great uh, messages from, uh, I think these were both Russian listeners, or at least uh, listeners who had Russian family. Um, so a couple of messages about teens in the universe. The first one from Slava providing some interesting cultural and historical context for this 1974 Soviet science fiction movie. Slava says, hi guys, I'll try to keep this short because I feel like I tend to ramble. The apparent paradox in teens in the universe, which seem to stump the robots is actually a riddle for kids. Remember, this mm. was the A and B sitting on a rose thing that yeah. we didn't understand. I mean, it was clear they were using it to short circuit the robot's brains, but uh, but it, I did not know what the original thing was. So Slava says, in Russian, the word for 
and is just the letter in, in the Cyrillic. This is like a backwards in, which Slava says is pronounced like the English letter E, which I will use as its stand in to hopefully make things less confusing. The wording of the riddle therefore becomes ambiguous. It can be read as A and B are sitting on the wall or as A, E, B are sitting on the wall. So, when asked what's left sitting on the wall after A falls down and B falls down, the correct answer would be the letter E. My guess is that all the robots are too mathematically minded to understand the nuance of human wordplay. I see. Okay. So, the issue is that the conjunction, the, the sound in spoken Russian indicating the conjunction for and could also just be a word in a list of things that are sitting on the wall. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, yeah. This this uh this email definitely um explained it a bit more. Like you know, like you say we from the context of the film you can tell it's some sort of a uh you know, a logic puzzle type situation. I think maybe an, an English equivalent would be uh I'm about to say some letters for you. Memorize them. M and O. Mm-hmm. What were the letters? Was it did I say M and O or M N O? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, Slava goes on to say also, those gymnast rings you mentioned, uh, that remember they were uh, in uh, Pavel's memory of his childhood home. Those gymnast rings you mentioned were a common occurrence in households with children. The Soviet Union led quite an ambitious propaganda campaign espousing the virtues of exercise. Uh, as for the hobby of collecting nails, this also was Pavel's hobby. You remember, he had these giant long yep. nails. Hobby of collecting nails. I am at a loss. I'll probe the members of my family who grew up in the Soviet Union to see if I can figure anything out. Keep up the great work. I've enjoyed your show for years, whether at work or as a sleep aid. Uh, the recent edition of Weird House Cinema has been quite a treat. Slava. Uh, well, we're glad you're enjoying it, Slava, and uh, and and we don't resent that some people use our show to to go to sleep. We've heard that plenty of times before. Yeah, no, I mean, however, if, if you're using the show, uh, go for it. <laughs> How, whatever use we can, we can, we can be. All right, this one comes to us from Georgia. Hello, Robert. Hello, Joe. This is Georgia from Saint Petersburg, Russia. I've been listening to your podcast for over a year now, mostly to your invention series, which I really enjoy. I must admit that I almost overlooked your Teens in the Universe episode as I normally skip the Weird House Cinema episodes. Sorry, too much weird Soviet movies on my list to watch. I just cannot possibly afford adding anything more to that. (laughs) They continue. Uh, But while my podcast app was marking it as listened to, the description caught my eye with the keywords uh, that, as a rule, make me alert. Soviet and 1970s. You see, I'm no fan of sci-fi and no expert on that including the Soviet sci-fi. Moreover, when these two movies, as it turns out, uh, this was supposed to be one movie, but judged too long and split into two, came out, I was not even around. And yet, as someone born just before the breakup of the USSR, I'm drawn to that part of my country's history. Plus, having my parents, who can tell me quite a lot about it, I just couldn't pass by this discussion. The most curious thing for me was your decoding of the cultural codes, uh, um, actually, the way that you uh, react to the quote-unquote normal Soviet stuff in the movie, which might not seem weird to Russian viewers uh, even all those years later. So let me share some thoughts with you. And don't get me wrong, I do understand that uh, for an outsider, getting all the cultural codes in a Soviet movie right is a hard task. I can imagine how many of them would slip from my attention if I were watching, say, an old Chinese movie or something. 
I think we talked about this in the episode that like at least half of the weirdness in our reaction to this was probably actually just in us not understanding what some of these like uh, cultural symbols were. And, yeah. and it's hard to know one thing from another. Like, do the gymnast? It seems, so it seems like gymnast rings were just a common thing in Russian households. That wasn't meaning anything in particular in the movie. But nobody so far has said anything about Russian about nails, nail collecting. Yeah. I think that's just actually weird. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, and and like I said, it's it's always kind of an interesting um, thought experiment or an interesting project for a, a, a movie viewer to sort of figure this out. Whether you're watching something from a movie from another part of the world or even from another time, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you have that a similar situation going on when you say watching a film from the 1940s or something, and mm-hmm. you're like, what What am I looking at? Was this just was this the technology of the day? Was this a right. current fad, or is this just some genuine weirdness of this picture? Sausage Man. On the train with a dog in his basket in Mad Love. Yeah, exactly. All right, uh, Georgia continues. I should also point out that although I'd heard the title, uh, I watched the movie only yesterday, both parts, together with my parents. At least one of them claims having watched both parts back in the 70s, but being 15 or 16 at the time, my parents just weren't interested in those quote-unquote kids' film, uh, movies anymore. They say even for them back then, it seemed too slow and childish. Oh, Okay. <laughs> I I appreciate that my tastes are too slow and childish for your parents. So let's start. The title itself is somewhat weird because Otrok, O-T-R-O-K, a boy in between being a child and a young man, is a pretty old-fashioned word which you will normally find somewhere in either classic Russian literature, see Tolstoy's uh, trilogy, um, uh, uh, Detstavo, Childhood, um, and then Otrochestvo, Boyhood, Uh, unost, youth, and some moralistic literature. Here, I guess, it is used for the effect to make it sound like a high-style sci-fi title. Crimea, used as a set in many Soviet and Russian movies, including Lilac Ball. It's actually a kind of sequel to other famous uh, sci-fi teen movie, uh, Guest from the Future, and weird stuff such as Asa, a merge of a crime story, a love story, and rock music. Oh, I gotta look that up. Uh, and then uh, Georgia discusses uh, the Soviet uh, king of acting, Inokinti Smoktonovsky. And then they, this is their, their words, not mine. They say, God, that's a hard one to pronounce, I can imagine. <laughs> it's a very, much, uh, is a very much loved actor. Not necessarily a king, though, but definitely a very good one, particularly in that 64 Hamlet you mentioned. His performance is worth all the Oscars in the world, not kidding. Well, I should look that up, actually. Yeah. His title in Russian is I-O-O, a kind of play of words, because I-O is a common abbreviation for acting, Hmm. literally executing someone else's responsibilities. Plus, they added an extra O for special. So in the movie, he's executing special responsibilities. The meaning of acting in lieu of disappears. Hmm. Uh, Lev Durov, the academic, is also a very famous Soviet actor, well-known to kids also for his roles in kids' movies. For a weird one, see The Story of Voyages. Oh, boy. This one has a good poster. You should look this up right now. Ooh. It's like a man's face on the back of a uh, shroud or a cape or on the front of a cape. Also known as a fairy tale of wanderings. Interesting. Uh, I'm wondering if Weird House Cinema may just get like a Soviet takeover (laughs) of (laughs) Soviet genre films from the 70s will will sort of be all we do for a bit. 
Yeah, I'm sure we'll come back to it for sure. Uh, they continue, Baragavoy is a consultant for both films. I wasn't able to find any details of his trip to the USA, but probably I just didn't put much effort into my research. By the way, according to Wikipedia, he was shot at during an official meeting with cosmonauts in the Kremlin because of his resemblance with uh, Brezhnev, who is in a similar looking car. Uh, often referred to as a uh, uh, Chelnavaz or member carrier, member of the party. And then uh, for the characters, it mentions a lob, a nickname meaning forehead, but also a shortened version of his surname, sneaks into the spaceship because no one wanted to take him on board in the first part. Ah, he was a stowaway. Uh, he was very much into reading sci-fi and can be seen holding iRobot in Russian in some compilation of sci-fi stories in the first part. Hence his knowledge of all sorts of things from those books, including the dragonfly, uh, Strakoza classification. In Russian, he talks about strekozoids or dragonflyoids, apparently a sort of knowledge he got from so many sci-fi stories. Okay, so when they're saying Lob has expertise on alien civilizations, what that means is he's read a lot of Isaac Asimov. There you go. All right. Uh, Misha, uh, he recites Tolstoy at heart because of his special ability to memorize many pages of print for which he was selected for this mission in the first part. And then Pavel, his parents celebrate his birthday in a dim lit kitchen just for the sake of the candles on his on the birthday cake. We usually turn the light off uh, for that moment when the kid blows all the candles out. Also, his gymnastics kit in the hall of his apartment was quite common stuff in a Soviet family with kids. It's called uh, Shedskaya Stinka, Swedish Wall. Uh, we still have some leftovers from it in my apartment. When celebrating his birthday on board the spaceship, the children chant, happy birthday, altogether in a typical way, certainly not menacing. We usually do that when we want to wish happy birthday to someone altogether. <laughs> well, I'm sorry I read a menacing tone into the birthday shout. I think that was probably just me not being familiar <laughs> with that uh, chant. Okay, picking up with a few more things here. Uh, Georgia says uh, that all of the kids were equipped with a smizlulovitel. Um, in the first part of the movie, they have it on their chest, and this is the translator box. You remember that before? Ah, uh, yes. You know, so it was translating the whistles and the gestures of the robots so that they could speak. Uh, but apparently, they use this in the first half in Moscow, Cassiopeia, and it allows them to translate the words of aliens or even animals, uh, That is some kind of Google Translate type machine, Georgia says. Now, you remember the press conference scene where there is Biff Weyund. You remember him mm -hmm. with the, the yep. yellow turtleneck and the, the cool leather jacket? Well, Georgia says, the French journalist from Pif Vaillant, uh, that might be a translation of, of – that might be through which we got the translation Biff Weyund, also appears in the first part. Apparently, he doesn't change even after 27 years have passed. <laughs> He is also a sort of spy as he tries to make some shots with his mini camera in the first film. Huh. Okay. Uh, and then this part was interesting. Finally, about the music that makes the humanoids go nuts. You remember the, the crazy scramble horns and the bass mm -hmm. and the drums that were the sonic weapon that draw, drove Agapit out of his mind? Um, to my mind, it sounds like that sort of corrupting music from the capitalistic world you would hear in Soviet propaganda about the poisonous influence of the Western music or dance moves. It certainly does. And yes, I do think that apart from being an entertainment, the movie is definitely trying to get across its message 
about teens being our future, their role in bringing the society forward, about friendship, support, etc., etc. This message about the bad influence of the West on the youth was such a commonplace back then, it looks almost as organic in this film as the red square and the obligatory salute to Lenin's mausoleum that the pioneers, a much more politicized group than your scouts, by the way, that was the second step in the ideological education of a Soviet citizen after Octia Bryanok, uh, derived from October, for the very small children, preceding the third, uh, Komsomolets, uh, for the youth, and eventually being a member of the party. Uh, the And, oh, sorry, this is a, there's a big parenthetical in the middle of that sentence. So apparently the pioneers in the first movie, uh, they salute Lenin's mausoleum in, in Russia before they depart for Alpha Cassiopeia. Uh, but anyway, Georgia wraps this up saying, I might have forgotten some of the points. It's getting too long anyway. I hope this email was uh, not as boring as it looks. Keep on investigating into the Soviet realm of weird movies. We have so many of them and even weirder than the one you've just seen. Best, Georgia. Uh, well, sounds promising. Yeah, I'm excited. Thank you for all of this context. This was deep. Yeah, yeah. I, this was this really answered a lot of questions and raised new questions and and also presented some new movies for us to check out. So I'm excited. Yeah, I definitely want to check out the story of voyages and that Asa one too. Yeah. All right, let's wrap up with one last message here. This is uh, also about Weird House Cinema. This is from Brian. Brian says, hey, Joe and Rob, I wanted to write in and say how much I've been enjoying Weird House Cinema. Not to say I don't enjoy everything you do, because I do, but there's something fascinating to me about how you both explore and discuss these films. I haven't seen any of the films discussed so far, but somehow after listening, it's like I've always loved them and feel a kind of nostalgia. Anyway, there were two films I wanted to throw out since I'm already emailing. Keep in mind, I was born in 1990, and I am far from a film buff. First is the film Planet of the Dinosaurs. When I was a child, my grandmother had a VHS copy of this movie, and I have memories of watching it over and over. The intro music always gave me the creeps, and the film overall terrified me, but I still liked it. After listening to a Weird House episode, I attempted watching it, available on Prime, and was pleased to see my six-year-old son was also terrified by the intro music, and my wife made me turn it off. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This, to me, feels like a Weird House film, but you are the experts. Well, I looked it up, and it looks very promising, Brian. It's got some very cheesy-looking, I think, stop-motion dinosaurs. Kind of had a slight... Remind, uh, slight similarity to The Daytime Ended, which is a movie we might have to get into someday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But this looks great. Planet of the Dinosaurs, 1977. Brian goes on to say, uh, the second film I'm not sure fits quite as well, but I wanted to mention it anyway, and it is Troll Hunter or Troll Yagaran. This is a Norwegian film from 2010, and I love it. However, everyone I ever attempted to show it to hated it. Uh, that, that's the best kind of film to love, a film you can love alone. <laughs> uh, long story short, it is filmed camcorder style, and they hunt massive trolls and get into some dangerous situations. Kind of scary, very fun, haha. Uh, Brian, I have seen this movie, and I will tell you, I liked it. So maybe I I love Troll Hunter when yeah. it came out. Yeah, this one for for if, if if anyone out there is not familiar with it, don't let the camcorder style thing throw you, because uh, I know a lot of us got kind of um, over the the found footage sort of approach to filmmaking. Mm. Uh, 
Troll Hunter is really great, and it has so much wonderful monster science already just baked into the film itself. Like they really thought out this whole troll thing and troll petrification. Yeah, it's it's a great flick. I highly recommend it. Hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, but finally, Brian says, sorry for the long email, but lastly, I love you guys and all your work. I came across your podcast as well as Stuff You Should Know three years ago while my daughter was in the hospital having corrective heart surgery. Needless to say, I needed some distraction at that time, and you helped provide it. Thanks so much, Brian. P.S. My daughter is as normal as any other three-year-old these days and in great health. Uh, and so really happy to hear that, Brian. Thanks for the note. Yeah. And then glad that glad that we could yeah help you out in some small way through um, a hard time. I know what that's like uh, being in the hospital uh, with a kiddo. Uh, so uh, yeah, that was good. That was a great one to hear. And now we have two other well, at least one other movie. I don't know if Tro- Troll Hunter. I don't know if it's if it's weird cinema, uh, Weird House cinema. Uh, Might be too recent. Is that a, is that past our cutoff point? What do you think? Um, I don't know that it's too recent. I just feel like I don't know. Like it it kind of. Like, I couldn't really talk about the monster science of it because they do it so well in the film itself, you know? Um, I don't know. It's 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 a, we- it's a weird... Like, it's definitely a weird film. I just don't know um, what we could say about it, really, other than it's good and people should see it. So yeah. I, I highly recommend it. All right. Well, uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, tell Carney the Mailbot that that's going to be it for today. Uh, but, hey, we'll be back next week with another round of... Listener mail. We'd love to hear from everyone out there about, uh, you know, current recent episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, recent artifacts, uh, recent episodes of Weird House Cinema. Also, suggestions for the future on any of these uh, these product types that we're putting out. Uh, also, if you you know have thoughts regarding a Vault episode that we've republished, we'd love to hear uh, about that. Or if you have a response to a particular uh, listener mail that we've featured on Listener Mail, that's open uh, game as well. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.